Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The Lord Jesus is referred to as a merciful and faithful high priest. There is an awful lot that I can say about him being the high priest. In fact, I have done a series of programs entitled Jesus, Our High Priest, and so I would like to encourage you to listen to those. But in this context, he is just simply introduced. The Lord Jesus is compared with the high priest in more detail in another chapter, as well as the Levitical priesthood, both the high priest and the Levitical priesthood, and so I will refer to those a little bit later. But in verse 18, what the writer introduces here is that the Lord Jesus is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He is able to come to our aid when we are tempted by the sins that we are confronted with in our life. Now, many people know about this verse. It is a very popular verse. Many people are very familiar with it. But one question that still remains to be unanswered in most cases is just how in the world is he going to come to our aid? I mean, really, seriously. For those of us who have been a Christian for a long time, for many years perhaps, For those of us who have been devoted to reading our Bibles and going to church every week and witnessing to the lost to try to tell them about the gospel so that they can be saved also, for those of us who have been living the Christian life, virtually each one of us would be able to say in our own way that we have no idea how he is ever going to come to our aid because we seem to be struggling with sin just as much as we did before we got saved that for the most part, we don't seem to be able to overcome the temptations as much as we would like. Now, what I mean by that is that we may have been able to find a way to get our flesh under control to a certain extent, but deep down in our hearts, the temptations still come to us. We live our daily lives and we are confronted with the same temptations that we were confronted with before we came to know the Lord Jesus. And in our minds, we struggle with these temptations. And of course, sometimes in our flesh as well. So when is he ever going to come to our aid? How is he ever going to come to our aid? What in the world does that mean? Well, for the most part, the way that most people will look at this verse is they will look at it and say that somehow the Lord Jesus is going to empower us to say no to the temptations that we are confronted with. That he's going to give us some empowerment of some kind. And we don't really know how that's going to happen, necessarily. We just believe a promise that somehow he's going to give us the strength, that he's going to give us the power, that he's going to give us the ability to put the sin out of our life. 
that somehow he's going to intervene in our hearts and in our minds. He's going to intervene somehow, someday, some way. We just hope that somehow it's going to happen. This is what many people are thinking. I know you can understand what I'm talking about. I'm sure that you have had moments in your life when you've thought just what I'm describing, that we wonder how this is ever going to occur because we always seem to struggle with sin. You know, sometimes in the past when I've visited with a few churches, I've watched pastors preach from their pulpits, and they almost gave the appearance like they were some kind of a coach. And we were the team, the people who were in the pews or in the chairs. We were the team, and he was the coach. And he's up there just telling us that we need to start resisting the temptations of life, the temptations of sin. And he's telling us that we need to just work harder at it, that we need to be more committed that we need to discipline ourselves, that we need to do whatever it takes in order to overcome these temptations. And then the choir gets up and starts singing for us. And the choir seems to be like a group of cheerleaders where you have the coach and the cheerleaders and the team, where you have the pastors who's the coach and the choir who's the cheerleaders and the people who are the team, and the team goes out there into the world and fights to win. And that seems to be the way by which Jesus is going to help us overcome the temptations that this seems to be the model of most churches, of most congregations, in order to try to get their people to stop sinning. And so there's this mystical belief of some kind that somehow he's going to empower us. But because we don't know how, and we don't know why, and we don't know in what way, it never seems to transpire, it never seems to happen, and we just live with this hope that one day he will help us to say no to the temptations. But, you know, when I look at this verse a little bit more closely, it says something a little bit different that we all need to get together as a coach, cheerleaders, and team model. In verse 18, he says again, For since he himself was tempted, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid. So to say that he himself was tempted, that maybe this has something to do with it, that the fact that he was tempted, because of that, he now will be able to come to our aid. Well, if he's not going to mystically empower us, then perhaps this means that he is going to give us an example to live by. Maybe that's what this means. Some people will consider this verse from that perspective instead. In fact, this is a little bit more popular than to think that he's going to mystically empower us. People often look at this and say that he gives us an example to live by, and so we study the life of Christ. We study how he lived, how he walked, how he related to people, how he exposed himself to the world. And we try to follow his example, so that by his example, we will be able to overcome the temptations, and that is how he aids us. One of the most popular ways that people describe this model or this approach is to ask the question, what would Jesus do? I mean, if we would only know what he would do in our situation... Then we would do what he would do, and we would then overcome the temptations that we are confronted with. That is the aid that he provides. He provides an example for us to follow, for us to live by. And we just need to do what he would do. We need to imitate him. That's what we need to do. If we imitate him in the sense of identifying the way of life, the lifestyle that he followed to incorporate our understanding of what is good and evil and follow the path that he outlaid for us, then we would be able to overcome the temptations. One time I was talking with somebody who actually mentioned 
that because Jesus was a Jew and he lived like a Jew, that was what enabled him to overcome the temptations because he lived as God required him to live. And I thought, you know, I've been there. I've been there and I've done that already. You may be able to impress a Gentile with something like that, but you're not going to impress a Jew like me, especially given that I truly have lived that life before. I've been there, done that, and bought the T-shirt. And so I've tried that. I can tell you that just trying to be a Jew isn't going to do it. There must be something else. And yet, when we try to live according to his example, how are you doing with that? Is that really working? Well, in general, no. I mean, if you really wanted to do it, live a life of a Pharisee. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense. I mean that in the sense that the Pharisees lived a life of pursuing the law as best they could, a life of obedience and repentance. No one has ever come close to comparing to a Pharisee in this pursuit by following examples, by following the examples of their rabbis, of the Pharisees before them. To me, they have given the greatest effort in comparison with anyone throughout the course of history. And it doesn't really work for them. It doesn't change their heart. They are still confronted with the temptations, and while, again, they may be able to get their flesh under control, their heart is never changed. I know this. I've done that. My heart was never changed. My rabbi's heart was never changed, or the rabbi before him. I know what this does, and I know it does nothing in order to aid us with the temptations that we are confronted with. In addition to that, consider the temptations that the Lord Jesus was confronted with. I mean, since he himself was tempted, then he can come to our aid. Well, what was he tempted with? I mean, what temptations was he really confronted with? Well, I'm confident that he was confronted with every temptation that he could have possibly been confronted with. I really do believe that. But there were some unique temptations that he experienced that I don't think I will ever be able to relate to. For example, I don't know about you, but I myself, I have never, ever been tempted to turn a stone into bread. I mean, that's a temptation I have never experienced. I have never, ever experienced that temptation. He has experienced that temptation, and so given that he has experienced that temptation, and I will never experience that temptation, I feel a little bit of a disconnect there in terms of how I'm going to follow his example. I'm not being very serious about that. But he was tempted. He was tempted by the devil himself to commit various sins. Now, while I have not been tempted with the same sins that the Lord Jesus was tempted with, I have been tempted with the similarity of sins. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, John mentions the sins of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The Lord Jesus was tempted with the lust of the flesh, that being the bread that the devil was referring to when he said, why don't you turn the stone into bread? That Jesus had a fleshly need. He was tempted with regards to the flesh that he had, that restricted him, that restrained him, that put him in a position where he would actually get hungry and he would need to eat something or he would starve to death. And that was not the way that he came to die. So that was a temptation that he was confronted with. And I can relate to that in the context of the lust of the flesh. I can relate to that. And the lust of the eyes, I can relate to that as well. I am tempted all the time by things that I see with my eyes. You know, in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, the devil gave Jesus a vision. He imposed on Jesus a vision that apparently Jesus wasn't asking for, but the devil had the power to give Jesus a vision 
And it was definitely a supernatural experience where he showed Jesus all of the lands and said, I will give this to you. Think about that for a moment. Think about what it would be like to be the Lord Jesus or to be yourself even and for the devil to come to you and say, I will give all that you can see. I will give that to you if you will, of course, worship me. But aside from that, if you could see it, you could have it. But what would it be like if you didn't have your eyes? What would it be like if you were blind? Try that for a moment, assuming you're not driving an automobile or something like that. Close your eyes just for a moment. If you are doing something like driving and your safety would be at risk, don't do this now. Do this when you get home or when you park your car. Close your eyes for a few moments and ask yourself, how would this change your life? How would this change your priorities? How would this change the things that are important to you? How would this change your goals, your future goals in your life? What are you really working for? What are you working towards? What are you hoping to gain? What are you hoping to acquire? How would it really change your life if all of a sudden you just simply couldn't see? It would change your life a lot. I know it would change my life. I will admit it. And so if you can consider that, then how would the Lord come to your aid if he knows what it is to be tempted like that? Is he going to say, look, I understand, I can relate, I can, because, you know, I was offered the whole world. I was offered a whole lot more than you are right now, than you're being offered, and I managed to overcome it. I managed to say no, and so you can say no, too. Is that really going to change your heart? Is that going to take away the desire? No, it's not going to do that. And so if you're going to make assumptions about how he's going to come to your aid, really think about it, really follow through with what you believe is true and take it to the furthest conclusion that you can possibly take it to, to see if it stands up against the test of absurdity. And I sincerely believe that that will give you some great insights with regards to your attempts to try to overcome your temptations. When these assumptions or these expectations fail, what normally happens is that people will default to the usual models of trying to overcome sin. They usually default to things like, well, God is going to punish us. He's going to discipline us. We'll call it discipline instead of punishment because discipline has a different connotation to it. Or we believe that he will withhold blessings from us in order to inspire us to overcome our temptations. Or we believe that he will bless us if we manage to overcome our temptations, either here now in the flesh, or he will reward us in heaven if we manage to overcome these temptations. In other words, what people do is they take their theology that they already believe and they try to incorporate this into their existing theology. And the existing theology for trying to overcome sin does say that. The existing theology says that through the threat of punishment or through the promise of blessings or rewards, he will encourage you to overcome the sin in your life. And so when they read through verse 18, the way that people will interpret it is that because Jesus has become our high priest... He is a merciful and faithful high priest, as is described in verse 17. Because of that, when we get into verse 18, we say that because he went through all that he did, he has now been able to institute a new covenant through which he is the high priest. And the new covenant now is about a new sacrificial system, a sacrificial system of confession and apology and asking for forgiveness instead of the shedding of blood. He's instituted this new sacrificial system. He's instituted a new priesthood 
whereas we do not have the Levitical priesthood anymore, now we have the pastoral priesthood, or we have the ministerial priesthood, or the priesthood, like of the Catholic Church, they call their priests priests. That that is the model of the new covenant, that we now have a new covenant, a new priesthood, a new sacrificial system, and instead of the wages of sin being death, now the wages of sin are invocations of discipline, or punishment, or the withdrawal of blessings, or the refusal to give rewards, things like that, in order to try and direct people and motivate people, that he has now given us a better system to live under, a better system that doesn't have as much pressure as the old system did. You know, the old system had a lot of pressure. Back then, the wages of sin is death. Today, the wages of sin is apology, asking for forgiveness, confession, penance, whatever, things like that. It's not as serious. Sin is not as serious anymore. And so he gives us greater opportunities to overcome our temptations. You don't just get executed. Now, you just ask for forgiveness if you have some sin in your heart. You just ask for forgiveness, and then he'll forgive you that we have this new sacrificial system. This is what people actually believe. And they really believe that somehow he's going to come to our aid. But then here's the problem. And this is a very serious problem. And that is that when we follow these ways, when we follow these paths, when we participate in this kind of religion, what happens when it doesn't work? What are we going to think when we're not overcoming these temptations? When it doesn't seem like he's coming to our aid in the way that we want him to come to our aid, what are we really going to think at that point? Well, I'll tell you what people are thinking, because I've asked, and people have told me, and I've thought the same thing when I struggled with these issues. What people think is, first and foremost, that we don't know if we're even saved. We don't know if we even know the Lord Jesus. That's what people think. People really do start to wonder if they're even saved, if they're even a Christian, because there is no mystical empowerment, because the temptations are not getting any easier, because we're not overcoming the ones that we already had to deal with before, and we got new ones that are showing up in our lives now. And because of this failure, we have to wonder, are we saved at all? And who are we going to tell this to? Who are we going to say this to? Who are we going to admit this to? Are we going to go up to our pastor and we're going to say something like, Hey, you know, I can't overcome these temptations. I don't know if I'm even saved because I don't see Jesus helping me overcome these temptations. And your threats of punishment or your offers of rewards or blessings just aren't enough. It's not changing my heart. We don't want to do that. That's embarrassing. What's he going to do? He's going to make us feel more ashamed. That's what he's going to do. Or we're going to feel ashamed enough already. We're going to feel totally ashamed. We're going to feel like total absolute failures. And so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to have to just simply throw in the towel and just abandon it all. And a lot of people do that. You might have done that. You might be listening to me right now. And that's exactly what you did. And you abandoned your church and you said that you would never set foot in another one. And this is why people do that. And I understand. I wouldn't either. I understand. Not for that reason. Because it doesn't work. And it never will. And that's a good thing that you finally figured that out. You know, it's a good thing. It's not a good thing that you stopped pursuing the Lord Jesus, but it would be a good thing for you to give up on something that just isn't working. I mean, I can understand that. It's a positive thing. I really believe it is. If you finally recognize that what you're trying isn't working, then why don't you stop it? Honestly, I mean, be serious. Who do you think you're kidding? Who do you think you're fooling? Look, you're just making things worse if that's what you want to pursue. 
I mean, seriously, don't waste your time, or anybody else's for that matter. So how is he going to do this? Well, I don't know how he is going to do this in your life. I honestly don't know. But I do know how he has done this in my life, and so I can testify of that. I can testify of how the Lord Jesus has come to my aid to assist me in overcoming the temptations that I have experienced. The first component of this, or the first aspect of this, that is important to me is that the Lord Jesus took away the law. That's one thing that's very important. And that's what I see when the writer initiates the notion that he is greater than the high priest. And he just hints at it here in chapter 2. He gets into this more in detail in another chapter. But here, when he says that the Lord Jesus might become a merciful and faithful high priest in verse 17, that tells me a lot, because if he's a different high priest, then he's not going to be functioning under the law that I was functioning under before. That there was already a high priest. We didn't just need another high priest. And there was already a law. We didn't just need another high priest to be an overseer over that law. The high priest that we had was good enough. Anybody could fulfill that office, as is declared and required according to the law of Moses. We know exactly what the requirements are, and those are easy to fulfill. But to say that Jesus is the high priest says that the law has been taken away. And through the propitiation for the sins of the people that is described at the end of verse 17, that is how he took the law away. So that set me free from the burdens of the law. And the law was a very serious burden because the law stirred up more sin in my life. I did a set of programs called Keeping His Commandments that get into this in more detail. But as a summary, the law stirs up more sin because it gives me more things to think about not doing. Paul described this in Romans as struggling with the sin of coveting, in that when the law was presented to him to not covet, it stirred up within him every covetous desire. There's also the natural rebellion of humanity, that I don't want to be told what to do or what not to do. And if you tell me what to do or what not to do, I quite likely will just simply rebel because I want to be my own God. That is another way that sin can be stirred up in my life. But you know, the most powerful way that the law will stir up sin in my life is when I think I can live in obedience to it, and I believe that I will be pleasing to God because of my obedience. And what's so very deceptive about that is that if that's what I believe, then between now and the point of time that I finally find a way to be obedient, my God is not pleased with me. He's actually disgusted with me if I was to be truthful and honest with my belief. And so in the meantime, I'm not going to be loved by my God. And if I'm not going to be loved by my God, I need to be loved by somebody because I have a need to be loved. And so who's going to do it? If God isn't going to do it, then somebody's got to do it, and I'll be available to fall to the temptations that will be presented to me from the people in the world who will promise to love me if I commit sin with them, or who will promise to make me feel as though I am wanted or needed if I commit sin with them. Those are real temptations, real temptations of life. And he set me free from the law so that the law would not stir up sin in this way. And so this is one very important aspect of what he has done for me that sets me free from the temptations. In this way, I can say that he has come to my aid. He has come to my aid, as described in verse 18, because in verse 17, he provided me with the propitiation for sins. And because of the propitiation for sins, in verse 16, I know that I am a child of Abraham 
and that he will give me help because he has initiated this relationship with me. And then again, working my way up into verse 15, because of what he's done, he has set me free from the slavery that I was bound by according to the law and that I no longer have any need to be afraid. Because in verse 14, he took away the power that the devil had because Jesus forgave me of all of my sins. And because he forgave me of all of my sins, if I go back up a little bit further to verse 11, I know that he has sanctified me. And if he has sanctified me, then I am one of his brethren. I am one of his children. I am his. And because of all of these truths, I can have some confidence and I can trust that he truly loves me. And let me tell you something. I have committed many sins in my life because I wanted somebody to love me. And I have fallen to the temptations of life. I have committed many sins because I wanted somebody to accept me. But if I can trust that he accepts me and that he loves me, there is no one who will meet the needs that I have in any way in comparison with the way that he meets my needs. And so because of the temptations that he experienced, because of what he went through, he has now instituted the new covenant and I have entered into the new relationship that he has provided for me. And in this relationship... He meets the deepest needs of my heart, and through that, he gives me the aid that I need to say no to the temptations that I am confronted with in life. And so it did start with him being tempted and overcoming his temptations. But eventually, through the transitions of instituting the new covenant and establishing a relationship with me through salvation, he then eventually comes to the point of aiding me in the temptations that I struggle with in life. And so because of the temptations that he experienced, it was through that that he was able to institute the new covenant. And through instituting the new covenant and establishing a relationship with me, he meets the deepest needs of my heart. And through fulfilling me as a person, as he created me to be, he then gives me the aid that I need in order to say no to the temptations of life because he fulfills the needs of my heart. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Thank you,